This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Patricia Martins Marques, and you are listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Yuko Miki about her new book, Frontiers of Citizenship, A Black and Indigenous History of Postcolonial Brazil, which is out by Cambridge University Press and has a new hot off the presses paperback edition. In addition, that actually, to celebrate it, uh, already managed to receive this year's honorable mention for best book uh, from the Lhasa, from Lhasa's 19th century section. Uh, professor Mickey is Associate Professor of History and Associate Director of Latin American and Latinx Studies at Fordham University in New York City. So Frontiers of Citizenship is, um, in my opinion, a beautifully written book that integrates quite seamlessly the history of Black and Indigenous peoples in 19th century Brazil. And in addition to being a book that will interest historians of Brazil and Latin America more broadly, I think Dr. Mikti's work will also speak to scholars that are interested in issues of race and ethnicity, in the theorization of borders as spaces of silence, of exclusion, and of resistance, as well as the intersecting histories of citizenship, popular politics, national identity, emancipation, and labor. Personally, this is also a book that helped me immensely uh, think through the quandaries of citizenship in a multiracial society. And in particular, it brought to my attention something that I, and I believe many others, often take for granted, uh, which is the idea that citizenship is an equally important and equally valued goal for everyone. The book not only demonstrates otherwise, but really helps the reader challenge these wildly held assumptions in a really compelling and uh, grounded manner. Professor Miki, welcome to the New Books Network, and thank you for agreeing to speak to us today and for writing, I think, this very important book. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. So as per usual for the channel, uh, the first question is always about your background. We, we're just a little bit curious if you mind to speak a little bit about how you came into this field and how you came up into this specific research project. And if you wouldn't mind as well, talk about a little bit of uh, the transition between dissertation project and book manuscript. Sure. So first of all, maybe I can start with this. As my name suggests, Yuko Miki, I am Asian. I am actually Japanese. And the and whenever I give a talk, the first thing that I say to people is, okay, since the question is on everyone's faces, 
where am I from? I always say, eu sou uma japonesa do Japão. I have a Japanese person from Japan. And then everyone goes, oh. And of course, the issue is first, you know, because Brazil has the largest diaspora uh, Japanese population, they presume I am from Brazil, that I'm a Japanese person, uh, a Brazilian person of Japanese ancestry. Um, and second of all, you know, they, they, uh, and they always want to know, but, but then the question is always, but then why are you doing this, right? Because the presumption is always, uh, I think there's always a presumption that if you're a person of color in particular, you study your own people's history. And I don't have that connection. I actually grew up in Tokyo. I came to the United States when I was 18. Uh, and then I went to actually Brown, which has a very good Portuguese Brazilian studies program. I didn't actually study there. Uh, but then so it was a gradual process over time. My family does not even speak English. Uh, I went to an American school. So I grew up bilingual, but I actually grew up in a Japanese-speaking family. They're in medicine. No one is a historian. No one's an academic. So I, I'm actually, literally, people are like, where do you come from? How did this happen? And who knows? But I always loved history. And I actually majored in history undergraduate as well. But that was in the European, the Italian Renaissance. For me, history was, as many of us even who grew up outside of the United States, we think history, we think European history. And I love the Italian Renaissance. But I had the fortune of actually kind of being introduced to Latin American history and Brazilian history culture because there was a group of people who were very involved in it at Brown, but it was still very tangential. And it was only after a long period of time, after graduating, um, and I was, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I was, my entry point was actually through the performing arts because I was so um, captivated by Brazilian music, by Latin American performing arts traditions. And it was kind of through that. And I met after moving to New York City, after graduation, certain people that became mentors. One of the entrants was, was, was through actually Capoeira Angola, but there was a gentleman who's still, you know, he's kind of like a New York institution, a man named Danny Dawson, uh, who if you walk with him in Harlem, you can't walk almost because he knows everybody. But he would just kind of sit there quietly. And then one day he would just start saying things like, Yuko, you see what these people are doing? This is Congo. This is the Congo cosmology, the four moments of the sun. He's talking about the Hoda, right? The Capoeira ring. And I was like, what are you talking about? But he was kind of the person who started introducing me to the, the richness and the depth of African traditions that were still very much alive and even embodied uh, within uh, living traditions in, in Brazil. And I just thought this was something incredible, that even maybe people who are doing Capoeira weren't aware of the cosmological origins of these ideas. But I was like, what does this all mean? Um, and kind of through him and through others, I became introduced to amazing people like Kamal Brathwaite, who was at NYU, was a legendary poet from Barbados. And he had this course at NYU about Caribbean cosmology. And I went to class. I just went as to visit because my friend invited me. And it just blew my mind. I had never experienced a classroom like that before. And I just basically went every week and I did all the work and everybody was part of that class, whether you were even officially enrolled or not. He didn't make that distinction. Many, many students from the Caribbean, many, many walks of life. Um, and it was just this really incredible uh, setting where people would, the things that we read about in uh, Aimé Césaire or that we were reading about in Kamal Brathwaite's own work or Olaudai Cuyano or those traditions were not just things we studied in class, but many of the students actually also had those kinds of stories from their own families and their own family histories. And they were kind of bringing that all together. And I just thought, this is incredible. Um, and then later on, I met some other scholars. And so it was over a time that I became really interested in particular in history of slavery and reading slave narratives and other things. And I thought the violence was so astonishing, but also, you know, the testament to the people's ability to survive this kind of traumatic violence of the Middle Passage of slavery. 
Um, and I became increasingly interested in wanting to study slave resistance. Um, and, and for me, you know, being a Japanese person with no family history, you know, either of being enslaved or of slave ownership. Uh, but I thought, you know, this history of slave resistance is something that we all need to know about because I just thought it was such an incredible history. So over time, I decided to um, pursue that field. So I entered a doctoral program in African diaspora history at NYU, which was a really, really excellent program uh, with a brilliant professors, but also a lot of students of color, which I think made a really, really uh, different environment at NYU that was very supportive, that was very stimulating. Um, and so it was only after time that I um, I was like, should I study Brazil? Should I study? I always wanted to work in Latin America, but already I had met many Brazilian people. And as you know, uh, Patricia and many other people, like field work could be very lonely, right? You just go by yourself to a different country for a year. Like you don't know anyone, you have to make your own connections. And I already knew some people in Brazil, but also I just found it to be just a very supportive community. And I was like, okay, I'll do this. Um, but at the same time, you know, and I could just continue this later, but it, I wanted to study you know, the history of quilombolas, maroons, because they had, you know, this history of kind of people fleeing their enslavement to create their own lives was just so incredible. But I was like, I want to study this. This is so famous in Brazil. There's so many descendant communities today. So I want to do this. So I went to Salvador because I had some connections in Bahia and I went into the archives and I had no training in paleography. So first of all, I panicked. I could not read any of the manuscripts. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And eventually it starts to make sense, but it took time, right? But the thing was, I couldn't find anything on the Quilombos 19th century I was like, wait, it's not there. So I, I literally saw my initial research project just fall apart before my very eyes. And I was sort of in a moment of crisis. And of course, um, Jean Hayes, who's a very famous historian of Brazilian slavery in the Atlantic world, and he's also very well known here in the U.S., he said to me, he's like, Yuko, todos os gringos querem estudar capoeira, quilombo e candomblé. He's like, every foreigner wants to study capoeira, quilombo and candomblé, right? The Afro-Brazilian religion. And I was like, well, so do you. You know, I didn't say that. <laughs> But I was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? And I was sort of in a moment of crisis. And it just so happened that Olivia Maria Gomes da Cunha, who's a very you know, well-known uh, uh, Black hist- uh, scholar and anthropologist at Museo Nacional, the now burned down, but rebuilding National Museum in Rio, she was said, oh, Yuko, you know, I have a student who's working on this rural Black community in the extreme south of Bahia. And I was like, it's like maybe you should talk to him about it. I said, extreme south, all of us who study Brazil, you know, we study the same places. We study Salvador, right. we study Rio, we study Sao Paulo. Maybe some people go to Minas or Brasilia, but most of us stay in those kind of urban centers. And I was like, okay, uh, sure. So I talked to this guy. He was from actually a Swedish doctoral student who had been living in Brazil. And he told me about this place called Colonia Leopoldina, a former European slave plantation that had become now was a dis- of a black community that was petitioning to get recognition as a a Quilombo descendant, him on the Sanchez Quilombola community. And that was kind of the turning point for me because when I started looking into this archival history, because I'm an archival historian, there was it was incredible. I was like, oh my God, there's so many slave insurrections. It's just full of Quilombolas. There's so much going on. But there was also something else. That was that I was finding all these sources on indigenous people. And to me, as somebody who was trained in African diaspora history, and you know, those of us, we all go into well, those of us, most of us who go into Brazilian 19th century history, we're kind of expecting to, and you know, to see slavery, right? right? And yeah. African descended people. And that was my approach too. But then I found something in the archive that didn't match what I was there to expect. And that was the 
kind of the big conundrum that I eventually I faced. I said, what do I do? What are these people doing in the archives? Hadn't they all disappeared? This is the Atlantic coast. This isn't some interior, this isn't the Amazon. This is the Atlantic coast in the middle 19th century. And most of these sources were talking, it was just a very virulent language, right? Mostly about dangerous indigenous people as an infestation uh, and conflict. And I was like, what's going on here? And so I started kind of thinking, oh, maybe the way that I had been approaching Brazilian history was incomplete, that I had sort of been just training myself to only look at Afro-descendant and Black history. But what does it mean to then recognize these other histories? And it's not that it's even that the archives didn't have these sources, they were these sources. But what does it mean that perhaps we historians and others choose not to look at these sources because it doesn't fit the idea of what we think Brazilian history is? And so that was the kind of the big challenge. And, you know, I still think to this day that I had the choice of ignoring the indigenous sources, right? You could just say, you know, I study black history. I don't do indigenous history. Let's just ignore these sources because it's not what I do. And I think a lot of us, you know, and we do have to make choices in our work. But I thought, what does that actually mean for me to also say that, to say the histories of these people that are here, what does it mean for me as a historian to say, I'm going to ignore these because it's not what I do. And I felt like that was not only just ignoring what's in the archive, but I almost thought it was unethical, that it was all, it was kind of a historian's act of violence to ignore people who are actually there. And rather, I said, maybe this actually is an opportunity to think of Brazilian history differently, to say, what does it mean to actually think of the uh, African pop- descended populations and indigenous peoples living in the same space and sharing the same histories, even as the art, you know, we, we think we are always told over and over again that indigenous people have largely disappeared in Brazil. So that was my uh, point. And, and, and I have to thank the late and very important historian, Jean Monteiro, who was at Unicampi. I was um, early on in my work, I was hesitating because I didn't have any training in indigenous Brazilian history. There were no specialists around me. Um, and uh, I remember talking to Jean Monteiro and I said, what, what should I do? Because he was one of the leaders, you know, and he raised a generation of indigenous historians, but mostly in the colonial right. period. And he said, you have to do this. He's like, don't give up. You have to do this. And I'm really grateful that we had that conversation. It was actually just months before he um, uh, uh, tragically wow. passed away mm-hmm. in his car accident. So um, I'm very uh, grateful to him and to um, other people since then that have actually encouraged me to learn more about Indigenous history and to pursue this kind of different path from what I had started out doing. And, and how interesting, actually, that uh, Blacks of the Land, Jean Monteiro's really famous book uh, has just been translated into English as well and it can now be used in in classrooms and more widely it's a, it's a really important contribution i think and I, w- one thing that i think you do really well is actually to expand on on this notion of of actually to help us challenge our own disciplinary formations and um the narratives we inherit from our own canons and our own field canons. And the, the, the entire narrative that uh, indigenous people had disappeared, it, your visit to the archive and you engaging with Colonial Opoldina really challenges uh, th- those assumptions and demonstrates the importance of confronting uh, the canon against the, the archival record. 
I think I, th- that is, I, I think, um, I was uh, <laughs> flabbergasted when I saw that in the book and when I saw actually the combination of indigenous and black histories. So how was it for you to, to engage with indigenous history in the 19th century, having a dearth of, of secondary literature to engage with? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I have to do give props and, and, and to, to uh, really thank historians like Hal Langford at um, SUNY Buffalo, Isabel Misagia-Gemato's historical anthropologist, Marco Morales also in Brazil. And these are people who've actually done a lot of work on the Botocudo, and they've been incredibly generous. And without them, their scholarship, but also their personal assistance and mentoring, I, this would have been impossible. Um but first of all, as you were saying, like, you know, in a way, like as historians, we have to know the canon, right? You, your scholarship, of course, is resting on and sort of building upon and, and uh, existing scholarship, right? So, and you, and part of the act of kind of becoming a scholar is to show that, you know, the field and the literature, and here's my contribution. So, of course, you have to know the literature in Brazil in this case. And of course, much of that is incredible, right? And kind of foundational text, mostly on African-based slavery. Uh, so that was kind of had already formed my ideas. But on, on the, by contrast, there's so little on indigenous people after the colonial period. Um, and, you know, there are, as I just like the people I just mentioned, there are some people doing important work. Um, Maria Celestina Almeida, G. Almeida also in, in Rio de Janeiro, for example. But there's so little. And it's not just that there's a lack of it, but there's actually a lot of certain scholarship on Brazilian Indians. And that's the stuff on like romantic Indianism, the symbolism, right? The literary representations, Iracema and, you know, all those uh, the the academic paintings and Indians are actually there's a lot of scholarship on that, right? Or um, so it's kind of the symbolic representations of Indians as a uh, in nationhood. There's a lot of scholarship on that, uh, and there's also some work on scientific racism in the late 19th century, and the indigenous people are prompt figure prominently in that. But what that kind of scholarship actually does, in a way, is it reinforces the idea that indigenous people do not belong in the present, the present in my case in the 19th century. So what I started realizing was that it's not enough to just read that literary or representational scholarship, because in a way, it's kind of part of this larger idea that I talk about in my book about indigenous extinction discourse, right? And this isn't specific to Brazil at all. You see it in Argentina, in in Mexico, even in Japan, my own country, this dialogue, this discourse about the Ainu people in Australia and, you know, in South Africa with the Khoisan people, like you see, this is kind of part and parcel of imperialism, right? The idea that indigenous people are destined to disappear. So it's not unique in Brazil either. But the very fact that kind of this, the lack of literature on living indigenous people, but the also the richness of the literature on indigenous representation was, I think, part of the same kind of conversation. So um, I really had to, uh, I really am very thankful for these scholars that I just earlier mentioned, Isabel Matos, Hal Langford, and others who have actually done a lot of the historical work uh, Hal Langford, especially from the late colonial to the early uh, 19th century, and Isabel Matos actually even does more recent ethnographic work. Um, and they were actually the ones who not only uh, uh, helped me kind of, you know, make sense of the the sources that that I was finding, but also to, you know, they're the ones, especially Hal Langford, was like, you have to read these um, ethnographically. Like you can, even if it's a travel narrative by a French traveler, like Auguste Saint-Hilaire, who's just describing his encounters with the indigenous people. He's like, you can read these maybe through an indigenous ethnographic lens. So he kind of helped me revisit even these sources that are, you know, in from our 21st century gaze, they're extremely full of prejudice, right? They're talking about indigenous people as being uh, untruthful, that they're uh, tra- uh, they're traitors and, and they can't be trusted. They're cannibals. Like there's very virulent language often 
but to still be able to read through those and kind of across those sources, um, I think was very essential. Yeah. And um, it's such a, an important contribution. I, I think the matching that you do of these two historiographies. Um, let's just uh, dive into chapter one a little bit and and talk about what you already mentioned, Colonia Leopoldina, as, as it seems that it was your first motor to this, to this project, your first entry point into this project. Um, you also discuss in very rich detail uh, the ambition behind the creation of this space, um, a space of racialized labor. Um, but you also describe later on how those plans go awry for a multitude of reasons. I think it would be interesting if you could go a little bit into more detail about not only the establishment of Colonia Leopoldina, but also to consider that space, um, how that space was represented in relation to the idea of the Atlantic frontier, which is so central to your work as well. And, uh, and if you could provide a little bit of context of the 1824 constitution and the Botocudo war as well. So Colonia Leopoldina, right, as you, you were saying earlier, was my point of entry because the descendants today are mobilizing for recognition as Quilombolas. Um, so it was part of this, you know, it was a late colonial project, right, uh, um, under Don John VI. And they are basically uh, Swiss and German immigrants who are given this land grant in this part of Brazil, which is basically on the Atlantic Ocean, yet it wasn't really inhabited by colonists. And the reason, well, I guess you could say there were two main reasons. The first being that because it was uh, on the coastal region, the interior, immediate interior of which was Minas Gerais, the mines, the Portuguese crown had literally sealed off this region from settlement because they didn't want people smuggling uh, whatever they mined to the Atlantic coast and uh, away from Portuguese co uh, crown control. But the second reason was because this was the territory inhabited largely by indigenous people that Colonists uh, called, but that were became to be known as the Botocudo. And there you see, there's a kind of a genealogy in the colonial and post-colonial imagination of these indigenous people as being, you know, wild Indians and, and tame Indians or good Indians, bad Indians. The idea that some indigenous people were friendly to the Portuguese and helped colonization, while others were uh, rebellious and, uh, you know, did not and, and actually repelled the Portuguese. So the Botocudo kind of become the classic example of these rebellious indigenous people. And this was largely their territory. There were other groups like the Mashakali, the Patasho, etc., Puri, but the kind of the largest group that the Botocudos kind of becomes larger than life because they become to symbolize many things, especially in the colonial imagination. The, the largest uh, idea being that they were cannibals. It's not proven actually at all, but it kind of, this cannibalism imagery arises, especially in times of conflict. So it was largely because of them that colonization had not really been effective there. But things begin to change, the decline in mining. So there's, they need new sources of in, uh, income or, or uh, and, and I guess commerce. So there's a development project. So the Swiss and the German immigrants getting a land grant here was actually part of that project. And I decided to call it the Atlantic Frontier because in a way it is kind of a, uh, a contradictory oxymoronic name, right? It's, it's a frontier which we think of as maybe an interior far away, but in fact it's on the Atlantic Ocean. But it's actually a largely uncolonized stretch of land that becomes colonized and incorporated largely after independence as Brazil is already, uh, at least on paper, a nation. And of course, there, this isn't the only region within Brazil that borders, of course, and where is far south in the Rio Grande do Sul or in the north or with the Amazon or all those areas, I think, are frontier regions. But I decided to focus on this area in particular. And it really allowed me to think about the place of frontiers in Brazil's nation building and what it means, you know, the frontier, not just as a geographic space 
in which people it's literally at the margins of a nation or the edges of nations where there's a little colonization or, or settlement, but also a frontier in terms of, I kind of want to take it more conception in terms of where new ideas, in my case, about citizenship, about national belonging were being negotiated. And doing so, it allowed me also to kind of recenter how we geographically imagine Brazilian history, which we were saying earlier. And part of Brazilian historiography is about Caminhos y Fronteras, right? The Sergio Barque de Holanda or the Capistrano de Abreu's idea about Brazil's history being about the bandeirantes and the backwoodsmen. But that's a colonial history. On the other hand, most of the historiography is centered on the coast because of the big cities, the connection to Atlantic world commerce. But I was like, so but what does it mean to kind of reconceptualize the nation, not through these big cities of Rio, uh, especially Rio de Janeiro, right, especially for the 19th century, but to think about how these ideas about citizenship, about national inclusion and exclusion are being actually defined in these spaces where you have enslaved Africans and their descendants, where you have indigenous people who are on paper, they should be citizens because they're born onto the land. And Brazilian law recognizes citizenship for people born on the land. But they're excluded in many ways because they're considered to be not really Brazilian. So they're, so I'm saying that while we can look at the laws on paper and the discussions happening you know, among the learned men in Rio de Janeiro, how is that actually being implemented and negotiated on the ground? So the frontier was a way for me to allow to see those processes happening on the ground in relation to conversations that are happening uh, in Rio de Janeiro. So I really wanted to kind of bring attention to both. And the immigrants play an interesting role because they... We, we often think of European immigration being becoming more encouraged as the approach of uh, the, uh, the cessation of the transatlantic slave trade second time in 1851. And they're like, oh, we need to replace them with European laborers. But this is happening much earlier. And it was already a very racialized project, especially German immigrants. Uh, and this guy, one guy I talk about, I think his name was uh, Jean Jan Martins Flach. And he's kind of a mercenary slash recruiter who's kind of tasked to bring in these European immigrants to settle these frontier regions. So he brings in people to colonial Elpogina, but also way down south as well, as it turns out, on the southern border. And so it was partly this idea of bringing in a free European white labor to populate these so-called frontier regions. But it was also, uh, right, the idea was that we were going to populate these regions not with slavery, we're going to bring in free labor. And the Europeans were expected to bring in other Europeans to propagate free white labor. But of course, and so, yeah, the opposite happens. The, the, what was the, mm-hmm. the rationale of, mm-hmm. of that, of wanting white labor in that area? I think that already by the early, by the turn of the century, as, as the, I think others have shown, when the royal court showed up, you know, escaping Napoleon, they showed up in Rio de Janeiro. They were actually like, whoa, they, they were they were horrified. They, they, to see the abundance of African people, you know, the abundance, the reliance on enslaved uh, slavery and, and on, on the abundance of African people, African descended people, but also indigenous people still at that point, I think to the Portuguese court was actually a shock. Uh, and no, uh, it's not the tropical Versailles in Zutu Varro, um, Kirsten Schultz's expression that they had really imagined in racial terms. Uh, and I think already by that period, there was already kind of a this sense, a sense of crisis that Brazil is, you know, a kingdom of Congo and the Americas that that fear was already there. Uh, and I think that way before most people talk about with the later European immigration, there was already a concern about this uh, Brazil's uh, population being too black and indigenous and mixed race. And of course, these uh, concerns only um, balloon as the, as, the, as the century progresses. But I think it was already there. So perhaps we can use that exact idea to move into the next chapter and, and what you describe as the frontier version of Saint-Domingue and 
how you describe the effects of abolition in the, of the trans, uh, transatlantic slave trade alongside the struggles between settlers and various indigenous groups, state agents, and slaves over the dominion of this Atlantic frontier. Um, so I thought that was a very uh, interesting discussion. And, and in particular, you have this sentence at a certain point in, in, in the con- in discussing, uh, while you're discussing the enslaved Africans, and you were talking about how they imagined the law about their freedom into existence, which I think is such a um, such an evocative imagery. So if you could unpack that a little bit more for us, that would be great. Sure. So uh, so this area is, you know, and when we it's when we think about Brazil, we think about so many Africans, so many, uh, you know, the abundance of slavery. But in the case, it's, you can't generalize it all. In, in this area, of course, there was a dearth of labor throughout the 19th century. And the struggle to have servile labor is an ongoing concern. So, and this becomes much more pronounced, especially with the cessation of transatlantic slavery. Of course, this happens many times, but the final cessation in 1850, by that time, there was a great concern about what are we going to do with this lack of laborers? And I think the con- the one of the main concerns about indigenous policy and, and the only national policy of the 19th century, the regulation of missions, or regulamento das missões, is 1845. And the main concern of that of that body of laws was basically to relocate what they thought were errant indigenous people onto aldeas or indigenous villages. And the point was to make them into productive, but of course, servile laborers. And this was always the concern, was that they, they would be kind of a replacement to early supplement or stand in for the lack of African-based labor. So the discourse was that this would prepare in wild, as they said, indigenous people for citizenship. But in fact, it was as I would argue, was a way to create servile labor groups in the service of local settlers. And there is a very, very, it's a very complex history, right? Because one of the things I talk about here in the first and second chapters too is is the persistence of indigenous slavery, which is something that, you know, indigenous slavery is so, you know, we think about it as the first slavery, right? They were first enslaved, they were decimated, they were replaced by Africans. That's the classic narrative that everyone knows about Brazil and the Caribbean, etc. But here in this region, there was never a great abundance of Africans, but there were indigenous people. And what happens in uh, with the arrival of the Portuguese court, Don Juan VI declares the war against indigenous people, that what he calls the Botocudo Wars in, I think, 1808. And it actually lasts until 1831, So, which is striking. So this war against indigenous people is legalized by the monarch and outlives Brazilian independence. And not only that, it's actually... Uh, is officially declared over the same year that the uh, the law goes into effect banning the transatlantic slave trade the first time, right, 1831. So there's actually these important coincidences that I think people haven't really looked at enough. But these wars, the nominally, the reason for these wars was that all uh, gentle, humane means have not worked, so we have to declare war, right? So it's the idea of a just war because they were hostile indigenous people. But a lot of it was driven by the desire to seize indigenous lands in this Atlantic frontier area, but also to enslave indigenous people and legally. And then later it continues after 1831 illegally. But it was to basically enslave them and to make them into a servile labor force. So you see this struggle for labor and land happening uh, at the same time that African slavery is expanding, that also indigenous people are also being enslaved. And these, and when you talk about laws and about enslaved intellectual life, and of course, work historians like Lohan Dubois about the Haitian Revolution have done amazing work on this respect, and Ada Ferrer and others. But in a way, it's it's not like this exciting Atlantic port city where sailors are coming in. There are sailors, but it's 
you know, we're, we're, you know, and I'm very glad Julia Scott's Common Wind has now finally been published, for instance, but this area that I'm studying is, is on the Atlantic, but it's not this major place like Rio de Janeiro or Salvador, where people are constantly coming in from overseas, and there's international commerce and news. And so it's not that. So the circulation of ideas, intellectual worlds of the enslaved, those things are not as apparent. But nonetheless, you still see these amazing connections to uh, ideas you hear from elsewhere in the diaspora, whether it be within Brazil or within Cuba or this, for example, the rumor that the king or so-and-so had freed all the slaves, but the masters don't want to tell us. And this often leads to insurrectionary rumors. So we see the same rumor here. And in, uh, I think it was 1851 here, even in San Mateus, in the northern part of Espirito Santo, that I also research in this book, right? The slaves at one point are saying that there was a law that the government had freed all the slaves, but the masters aren't telling us. And, you know, of course, in the sources, they're being scoffed at, right? The, the slave owners are like, oh, this is ridiculous. How could they possibly think that there's such a law would exist? But I thought it was incredible that in this region that is dismissed, even within the historical actors themselves, they're like, oh, San Mateus or Southern Bahia, it's such a backwater. It's a place with deserters and vagabonds and thieves and wild Indians and quilombolas. Like, it's such a disaster that area. And people are looking down on it all the time. But I just thought even so, how incredible to see enslaved people here claiming that there was already a law that would free them, right? And so you see the intellectual world, but you also see that in a way it is their claim on the laws of the nation, saying the Brazilian nation, we might be slaves, but they are freeing us, right? Not our masters, but the nation. And I thought it was really incredible, but also important to note those kind of intellectual processes and claims happening in this region that, you know, has basically scholars have largely overlooked as being unimportant to the history of slavery. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, I was personally, I was struck about, I study the 18th century and mostly Pará and the Directorio policy, and I was struck about the similarity of the reactions to the point that uh, when the directory ends in 1798, the administration of of the Indian villages is given, or Indians, is given to the uh, Juiz dos Orfãos, judges orphans and you describe very very similar projects i i i was sort of um, very um the models just seemed to repeat in the 19th century and i thought that was really really interesting which i think arcs back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier is that the botocudo war in the case of the botocudo war it's a war that begins still in the colonial period and continues into into the national period um wonderful um so let's just m- move on a little bit more and speak about, um, let's talk about Mestizo Nation, that chapter. Um, and I have to admit that this, uh, I too obsess about how um, indigenous peoples are represented and in particular about the narrative that they had no future or that they were um, exterminated and disappeared. Um, I was very interested in, in, in seeing how, actually one thing that, Maybe the thing that struck me most about this chapter was how you provide a very rich context to to Gilberto Freire, in a way, and and to the to, to the whole 
intellectual milieu that allowed Gilberto Freire to then formulate lusotropicalism and the idea of racial democracy. All those predecessors are there in the 19th century, and you, you go into great detail in, in, into describing them. Um, in, in particular, I was in, very interested in, in, perhaps that's where we can latch on here, how this this anxiety about what kind of the what kind of people the brazilian people was and and this nation that it, that imports africans and exports uh, botocudos um could you speak a bit more about that in the context of of racial science of of the anthropology and the projects of racial uh, of representation of extinction um in the in the 19th century Sure. So um, I guess I alluded a little bit earlier to the kind of the global context of extinction discourse, and Brazil was definitely part of that. But I think, you know, one of the things I want to do in this chapter, Miss Chiso Nation, was that, of course, you know, we, those of us who study Latin America, of course, know, you know, mid 19th to early 20th century is this kind of period of racial nationalism, thinking about uh, Brazil's idea of the three races. Uh, you know, of course, in Cuba, we have the uh, race, racial fraternity or racelessness that Ada Ferrer talks about in her book on Cuba and, you know, in Mestizaje, of course, in Central America, et cetera, that comes in the in Indigenismo, et cetera. So we see kind of this longer trajectory. But of course, in Brazil, as you mentioned, Patricia, the um, Gilberto Freire, the idea of race mixture uh, and racial democracy, those, you know, they've been criticized many, many times, you know, a very kind of resilient idea, but that also has been criticized many times. And what I you know, as I was studying it kind of on the ground up, that is from indigenous policy, but also just indigenous lives on this Atlantic frontier and kind of tracing it back to this idea of racial democracy was, oh, it's like, oh, wait a second. People often talk about the intellectual genealogy of racial democracy, right? Kind of even tracing it back to actually maybe the period that you study, or even under Pombal, I think there was um, people advocated miscegenation. Um, and that was actually right. a big influence. Yes, and that was a big influence. <laughs> yes, so you would know. So that's a big influence on 19th century indigenous policy. But I felt at the same time that many scholars like to study the intellectual genealogy of race mixture, but they don't really study it on the ground as a social history. Um, and what I was allowed to do, or the, the connection that I made was by actually studying indigenous history and policy, especially around the regulation of missions that I mentioned earlier about 1845, was it, oh, wait a second, it's not just about, you know, on one hand, you have this kind of national racial anxiety, right? A lot of the Brazilian elites are, you know, and they're aware, right? And they're increasingly self-conscious. Oh, wait a second, we are a nation that is still uh, dependent on African labor and African slavery. We have all these mixed race people. We have indigenous people. And they're very kind of increasingly self-conscious about kind of not looking as modern as they should. Modern, of course, being, you know, uh, signifying white, uh, and, you know, French thinkers, et cetera, people coming in and write the Louis Coty saying, you know, oh, Brazil not the povo, Brazil doesn't have a people and because of its race mixture, et cetera. So there's an anxiety about that kind of the national image. Um, but at the same, so you can think about the kind of the elite sphere, you know, the conversations happening in these elite spheres, but also on the ground, these were actually not just anxieties, but it was really central to indigenous policy, right? In the sense that, Missionaries were not only trying to, there were this, these missionaries were not Jesuits of yore. These are uh, Capuchins that were appointed by the Brazilian state and they're completely subordinate to the Brazilian state structure. But their idea was to, you know, not just uh, train indigenous people in labor to move them onto these Indian villages, the aldeas, but also to promote miscegenation, right? And, the, and you see these happening in the sources. And to going back to your earlier question, how does this uh, begin to happen so that, you know, we, we, we see 
increasingly in the sources where in the like, 1840s still people are saying, oh, this land is infested with Indians. They're threatening us all the time in this kind of state of siege, right? This, we're surrounded by these hostile Indians. And by two decades, 1860s, 1870s, increasingly these sources start to say, uh, there's no, there are no more Indians. Or they're Indians, but they're not really Indians because they don't speak uh, indigenous languages. They're a mixed race or they're just fake Indians. They're just posing as Indians. And there's, you start to see increasingly people talking about how there are no more Indians. The indigenous people have disappeared. And that is inseparable from this context of miscegenation. And that's not just about race mixture, but it's also about what we would maybe call acculturation, the sense that they are adopt the Portuguese language, they start wearing Western clothes, that they start practicing farming. Or even in the census, right, 1872, there's a new category called caboclo. And that is sort of a mixed race or an indigenous person who's been uh, made Portuguese, so to speak. So because other indigenous people who aren't settled, they don't count in the census, right? They don't appear. The only way you appear as an indigenous person is if you're already mixed race and kind of de-Indianized, so to speak. So you kind of see these things happening on the ground with with missionary practices. You also see them in the census, but also, as you were saying earlier, in scientific racism, right, in in anthropology texts, uh, 1870s, 1880s, they become very much in vogue. It's there, right? The Museo Nacional was very central to this too. But it's happening in Brazil, but it's also foreigners from the U.S., Charles Hart's coming in from the U.S. and Agassiz and all those people, and they are obsessed, especially with these Botokuda indigenous people and their skulls, right? They want to collect skulls. They're not interested in living people or only interested in them insofar as they seem to prove their already uh, their ideas that they already had, that they're destined to become extinct. They're, they're the most intellectually inferior. And, and let's, say, look at, let's measure their crania. Oh, look, we can just see that they're inferior to everybody else. So they're interested in classifying indigenous people among themselves, but also in relation to, of course, so-called other races. And the Botokudo really become this kind of the prime example of these physical anthropologists wanting to prove that even uh, physically, physiologically, indigenous people are destined to become extinct. Um, and so, and you know, and this, as I was saying earlier too, like this is really, I think you can't separate it from the celebration of indigenous origins uh, of Brazil, because those once again are celebrating colonial Indians of the distant past, right, right, who, mm-hmm. who assisted the first colonizers. But what happened? They all died, right? <laughs> you you often right. have these paintings like Moema. They're always dying. They're dying on the shore or something like that, or they're they're never of the present. They're always of the distant past. So I wanted to see all these things kind of working mm-hmm. together. And then, of course, the mm-hmm. scientific discourse that you described so well gives the empirical evidence that they actually have no future. They're not viable mm-hmm. exactly. people in the future. Exactly. So it, it's exactly. a real, it's it's a hypothesis that then acquires this empirical evidentiary basis that, that justifies this this narrative. Um, yeah, let's let's move on a little bit to the next chapter and um, talk about the. I wanted you to talk about this idea of legal and extralegal violence, which I thought was very interesting, and I had never thought about in, about it in, in quite this manner. And you have in particular this sentence that I thought was uh, very powerful, um, and I'll, I'll cite you now. Violence did not signify state absence and frontier honor anarchy, but ways in which the state and local agents created an evil legal regimes 
um, of citizenship for indigenous and enslaved Brazilians at the convergence between Indian extinction and abolitionism. And I thought this was not only very powerful, but another way of another instantiation of, of your attention to linking the history of indigenous peoples and enslaved Africans. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. And so, you know, every uh, chapter of my book, I try to take a different lens. One is be slavery, be, be race and nation, or in this case, violence. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to point out from, you know, what I learned from writing my own book was that, you know, even as I'm trying to study the Black and Indigenous histories together, it doesn't mean that there is a kind of a singular, a single subaltern history, right? Just because they're both uh, in, in subaltern positions doesn't mean that we can say that their histories and their experiences are all the same. And I think that, you know, that's, if we were to do such a thing, I think it's comes, you know, and I'm not saying those were these uh, solidarities or similar experiences, of course, did exist, but I think we have to balance um, our desire to see those as, as our own desires against, you know, what the, maybe the archives tell us or, you know, kind of more nuanced uh, things that we can discover as, as, we, as we look at our sources um, more carefully. And so that was one of the things I wanted to do through this chapter was to think about violence, uh, mostly, mostly perpetrated against enslaved uh, people of African descent and all indigenous people, um, but also thinking in terms of how we can think about the relationship between violence and legal regimes. So it was kind of both. And where I started out was, uh, you know, as someone who was trained in the history of slavery, you know, there's so much uh, scholarship within Brazil and, you know, throughout the African diaspora about kind of legalized regimes of punishment and violence against enslaved people, right? Uh, slave, uh, you know, hangings or tortures or et cetera, and the laws that governed um, master's ability to inflict, sla- uh, inflict violence on slaves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of that in Brazil too. And, you know, in the case that I look at here for 1884, I think in San Mateus and Norte Espirito Santo was, you know, it's also a lurid case, right? It's a sexual relationship between a male slave and his white mistress. And she becomes pregnant uh, with their child. And uh, as, as you know, the, she is forced to abort the child and by her family, who is, which was a family of some importance in the town, while the male slave disappears. But the suspicion is that he was first castrated. Uh, so that's, of course, a very symbolic act of violence. But what happens afterwards is very curious because you would think that this act of violence is you know, something to be shown to send a message. Most often when we think about slave punishment and about especially physical violence inflicted on their bodies, but of course also their souls, is that these acts of violence send a message to other slaves, don't even think about this. But what was so interesting about this case was that the family probably does this, and everyone thinks they did it, but they never admit to it, right? They just disappear his body. Um, and I was like, what did this all mean? What does it mean that in the context of 1884, of course, Brazil is only four years preceding abolition, that this powerful family, well-connected family, feel so that they have to hide what they did towards their slave? Uh, you know, and what does this say kind of more of the public discourse? And, 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 and you know, so, so the conclusion I draw, at least in my book, is that they, you know, well, we cannot deny the horrible violence inflicted on the slave, uh, the enslaved man, uh, Serafin, or the woman, of course, who's, of course, had no control over her own body or her own person. She's for, um, and so there's, there's violence kind of perpetuated against all people. But at the same time, the discourse surrounding the family is, is, was kind of strikingly goes against uh, what we think is the purpose of slave punishment. And it's because you see that these, this family itself, although they're 
they are allowed to walk free because of friends in high places. There is clearly an antagonism towards this family and the violence they inflicted. And they, they are seen as being barbaric, not the slave who impregnated his mistress, but the family. Um, and I saw this as kind of, oh, wait a second. This is, you see this kind of shift in kind of public perceptions of violence in London, which, oh, this, this man, although he was murdered, the laws are actually kind of, this has already appeared in Brazil where the laws of slave punishment are turning away from capital punishment Slave punishment is also seen as, you know, not something to be done in public, that there's a turning away. And maybe we can see this as a kind of a maybe approximation of laws governing enslaved and of free people or of citizens. So that's one way to look at it. But at the same time, I didn't want to end it there because then it kind of becomes almost a, okay, here's another study in laws and slave punishment. But what if we juxtapose it with violence against indigenous people? And so the case I looked at there was the massacre of these Nok Nok, uh, it's a subgroup of Botokuto Indians. And in this case, it's uh, Mataru Maldea, as it was called, to kill an indigenous village. There is a nighttime raid and a massacre of an indigenous village in southern Bahia by uh, an expedition of mixed indigenous and local residents. And in this case, as I, I discuss at length in the chapter, nothing happened. Well, basically, there is an investigation. And first, it's outraged. People are sure that the guilty parties are going to become prosecuted. But in the end, the case falls apart. Uh, and, and you know, and I, and I don't want to go into detail right now. Um, you could, I guess if anybody's interested, you can take a look at the chapter. Um, but the idea that I was arguing here was that you see these kind of acts of violence, you think they are random. There's frontier violence. It's a horrific massacre, right? All these children, everybody is gone down. There's blood all over. And then later on, people say, oh, nothing happened. Um, And it was easy to kind of dismiss it or just say, oh, this is a case of frontier anarchy. But the thing is that this act of violence against indigenous people follows a very specific genealogy of indigenous massacres. So there's already some logic to this violence that's happening. And the way that it's also discussed is it's not exactly extra legal because you see the murkiness of extra legal and legal violence where figures who are embodying the law and the state are also inflicting this violence at the same time that they're saying, oh, no, it's because indigenous people were there. Maybe they're the ones who did it. Or So there's a shifting of accountability eventually from the settlers to the indigenous people on the expedition. But at the same time, you cannot deny the presence of state agents. And so in the, in the way that this case eventually collapses and the, everybody's allowed to walk free, except the indigenous people, of course, I started thinking, oh, even as if we just looked at the laws governing enslaved people and, and punishment and violence, we can maybe see that maybe the laws are becoming more inclusive. There's approximation between laws of the enslaved and citizens. But if you then look at laws of governance uh, about ind- indigenous people, there's basically nothing. There are no laws governing punishment of indigenous people. Indigenous people, uh, I basically say that even though they're technically should be citizens of Brazil, they're actually not. That you see this, this happens in the, starting in the Botoku, the Wars of 1808. They are placed outside of Brazil's laws. And I think that this continues and continues, and you really kind of see it culminate in this case in, uh, in 1881, in which they're literally the court says nothing ever happened. There was no massacre. And that there are literally no laws that are even applied to them. That they're even their very existence, their very deaths are denied. Um, yeah, and, and that's such a. I, I thought that was such a powerful example, and especially um, when in the following chapter, 
then you talk about uh, this insurgent geography of, of anti-slavery, while at the same time, the Botokudus disappear from the historical record. And you, you speak in particular about police and judicial sources. Um, and you, you, talk, you, you describe it as an unco- uncomfortable convergence of Black freedom and indigenous persecution. Um, would you mind just elaborating a little bit more on that? Sure. So this was actually the very first thing I wrote. Um, it, it came out as a separate article that was in the Americas first, and then I expand on it in the version for this book where I also talk about a later insurrection or rumor, insurrection rumor. Um, but there, there was one thing is that when I first wrote it, I just wrote it about in the context of Quilombol, it's about Maroons. And it's, you know, and I was and thankful, very, very thankful to historian Flavio Gomez, who uh, literally gave me this court case. He was like, I was like, oh, I'm looking at San Mateos. He's like, oh, I have a court case for you. Take a look at it. And it turned out to be like the starting point for this entire book. Wow. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I love the generosity of Brazilian scholars. I'm internally grateful for. Um, so this was about a group of Maroons or Quilombolas in 1881 to about 1884 in this town of San Mateos in, in Eno. And it's a really striking source in which they're basically... Uh, there's a murder attempt and because, you know, they fled their masters, et cetera. So they're being uh, questioned, they're captured, they're questioned by the police, except for some of their, their leader, a guy named Benegito, who's still a local legend. People still talk about him locally as though he were still around. Um, but a lot of them who are interviewed are women, mothers and daughters, uh, women with small babies. Uh, and, and they kind of, and they really, through their stories, you can see the the, the social worlds of these Maroons, they're not living in these distant communities. They will actually flee right into the middle of town, or they don't even flee far away at all. They're just actually living sometimes like next door to their master, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And they're not just doing it for a little bit. They're there for years, right? Um, and it was this kind of remarkable story of how these, what I call the insurgent geographies that these, I argued that these Maroons kind of wove a different kind of geography in a place where there was no little interest in abolition or manumission because there was such a labor shortage. But I was saying that they started to weave a geography of freedom in the sense of how did they claim it? I want to be with my family. You know, I don't. I want to work, choose my own uh, labor. You know, I, I don't. I want to live in the place of where I choose how I want to live. And that in itself, I think, was a powerful claim on a geography that, in technically on paper, where they were still enslaved. So I wrote about that. But as I was developing in more into a book, you know, I was like, you know, I can write about this just as a article or a chapter about enslaved people and Maroons and their claims for freedom. However, what studying indigenous history has also taught me is that this isn't just Maroon territory. We often kind of think about Maroons as escaping into the wilderness, uh, you know, and that's fine. But guess what? This was indigenous territory, right? And how dare we just kind of presume that they're they're just running into empty lands? That's not the case at all. And... uh, Part of it was, I think, Maroons also didn't run into the interior because it was still indigenous territory, but also there's so much settlement now. There's increasingly less and less space. But also, what does it mean for Maroon people, let's say, to flee into territory that was indigenous territory? You know, I'm often asked, but didn't you see Quilombos with Black and indigenous people? There are some traces of evidence, but we can't presume that just because they were both oppressed peoples, that they would suddenly become best of friends when the Maroon runs into your territory, right? And you see, and and I think this is where uh, my colleague Oscar de la Torre's recent wonderful book, People of the River, also talks about this too, but uh, indigenous uh, Maroon people have incredibly rich knowledge about the land, about the natural resources, the rivers, but that knowledge isn't just African or African-based. It is indigenous knowledge, right? Indigenous territoriality is so essential. 
Botocudo Indians, uh, there are foragers, there are hunters, watersheds, hunting grounds, flowering trees, fruit trees, they're essential for their survival. What does it mean then for not just settlers, but for also enslaved people, Maroons, to be coming into their territory, especially as their lands are are diminishing at an astonishingly fast pace? So... I think it's really important to, you know, even as with our best of intentions, we want to think about these insurgent geographies or how enslaved people might have claimed freedom through flight, which is, of course, still extremely important. We can't presume that they were, the land was just theirs versus slave, their claims versus slaveholder claims, that this was indigenous territory. Uh, and what does it mean for their claims on the territory, whether, you know, physically, but also in terms of freedom or family, etc.? What does that mean to be making those claims on indigenous territory? And I think we have to be very careful about that. And as you alluded to earlier, also the archives by this time, and the archival sources are never one-to-one. You never find a source that has uh, that's labeled escravos y indios or something, right? They're always in different places. But by this time, indigenous people place sources are really diminishing. There were tons in the 1840s. Starts to diminish with the 1860s, 70s, as this increasingly people are talking about indigenous people disappearing, and by this period, there's very little. And so, for this era, I had to rely largely on um, the Capuchin, the missionaries' uh, sources, um, and they are the ones who are gathering the Botocudo in particular onto the mission of Itambacuri in northern Minas Gerais. But what that means is also that the Botocudo people are increasingly kind of packed onto smaller and smaller pieces of land. And maybe that's also another issue about when you think when you think about black freedom or you know flight to freedom, that this is also what's happening is indigenous people are being expropriated at an astonishing right, and very right rate. absolutely yeah it's very interesting and um, it's also the assumptions that sometimes that some spaces are empty or devoid of people when they were they were emptied but not empty. So let's move into the last chapter and uh, called Unfinished Emancipations. And I, I really thought it was very interesting, the discussion you have about abolitionism and about the near end of, of, of slavery in Brazil and all the debates that and the abolitionists have against slavery whilst preserving um, a racialized view of servile labor. I wondered you to talk a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not the first to make that claim at all, of course, even as, you know, especially there's so much rich scholarship now post-emancipation and a lot of that has talked about, you know, new, maybe citizenship isn't a marked category, but there are all these different ways in which they get marked or that, uh, you know, discourses about the need for discipline, about, you know, laziness and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you definitely see that here, even in this rollback uh, with this kind of, you know, it's not a major city area, but first of all, there is a lack of labor and that's never changed. So there is a concerted effort by even local abolitionists and missionaries to keep freed people tied to the land uh, because there's a diminishing fertile land uh, available. Most of the immigrants that we talked about earlier from colonial Apologina have already moved away to uh, greener pastures, so to speak. Um, at the same time, the interest in indigenous labor spikes once again uh, in the 1870s and 80s because people are alarmed about the abolition of slavery. Um, but there is so indigenous people are increasingly um, brought onto the missions, but they're also kind of basically being transformed into servile labor. Um, and 
you know, and it's, it was really for me striking to see how similar were the discourses of these missionaries and even abolitionists who were, you know, advocating on behalf of the enslaved, especially those Africans who were legally enslaved after 1831. You know, even as they were talking about the unjustness of their servitude, they're still speaking in very similar language about how they need to be disciplined, how they need to be taught, because left to their own devices, they wouldn't do anything, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and I really think that this, you know, in my, you know, throughout the book, one of the, the you know, this kind of the, the threads has been about, you know, this, in a way, it's a claim for citizenship, but it's also, right, as you were saying in the very beginning, we can't assume that citizenship means everybody is equal. I mean, we know that, but really in the Brazilian constitution of 1824, no one ever says equal. There's not, the term equality never appears, right? And in fact, uh, citizenship is inherently unequal. There's different levels, active citizens, passive citizens, etc. So there's different levels of citizenship even inscribed into the law. And I think that you see those different iterations throughout the 19th century. And I think that servile labor, uh, you know, while not legally inscribed, and you know, you don't have a category called servile labor, it is kind of practiced and enacted very often uh, in various places, but also in this Atlantic frontier region. And you see it happening for freed people, but also uh, for indigenous people. And, um, and so I, and, and so, you know, even as I, I, I'm never arguing that they should, black and indigenous history should be homogenized. I would never argue. That's what I, one of the things I learned from this book, writing this book, but that you um, kind of need to also, you know, people who often think about servile labor or post-emancipation labor regimes are not then also looking at indigenous histories. So what does it mean then that this Brazil, as it's making its transition into Republic is still kind of creating these new regimes of servility for both black and indigenous people. Right. Absolutely. And that's, uh, it's such a, Mm -hmm. it's such an interesting, an interesting, and I think with resonances today, this sort of tiered system of citizenship that then is reproduced through, through more structural inequalities. Um, so we've stolen enough of your time, and uh, thank you very much for that. But before we go, I'd just like to ask you if there was anything we didn't discuss um, that you'd like to talk about, and what's your next project? What are you working on right now? Sure. Um, I will say, for the, what can I say? Oh, I will say, oh, you did mention at the beginning about dissertation into a book, and I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't get to that earlier. But I will say that, you know, and... I think it's very important to be frank about for many of us who are making this transition from dissertation to tenure track or wherever you are to first book, et cetera, like, you know, life also goes on too. So my, in my case, revising, it was a lot about kind of, you know, the intellectual side kind of going very much, much more into learning about indigenous history and kind of thinking about it more conceptually in depth and to create it into a cohesive book, but also in the life side, like, you know, I, I have a five-year-old child, right? So kind of becoming a parent, negotiating in a many, in my case, I had to move to St. Louis while my husband was still in New York City, kind of negotiating long distance marriage, uh, parenthood. Those things are very, very challenging, right? And especially for those of us who study and research in areas that are very right. far from where we live. Mm-hmm. I'm from Tokyo. I don't, I don't have any family in this country, uh, immediate family. Like my mother lives in Japan. So, you know, those things are all uh, challenges that I think we have to continue to negotiate with and, and you know, and, and I hope to be, I think it's much more important for all of us to be much more transparent about those things because they do affect our work. Not necessarily negatively, yeah, it's life. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think that, um, yeah, but it, turning trans- dissertation into a book is happening in kind of these tremendous life transition moments for many of us too. Um, and I think that that's something that we need to be much more kind of open about. And I think it actually would help more people. Uh, that said, um, I'm still very, uh, in, very relieved. I've received uh, that last year. Um, Thank, thank goodness. Um, 
a Japanese <laughs> woman, tenured and Brazilian. Stranger <laughs> things have happened. Um, but I'm very excited to be working on a new projects. Actually, some of it was actually stuff that, you know, it's always good to, when you see something in the archives that might interest you in the future to just kind of keep note of it or to take a picture because they might come in handy. So that's literally what I'm doing right now. Um, so I'm working on the illegal slave trade, which, you know, is a kind of a lot of people are working on it right now. Um, but what I was really, first of all, it was between, you know, Brazil and Angola and, 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 and to present day Nigeria. Uh, and of course, many Portuguese people are involved in the trade and, and also people who are also based in New York City. So it's much more Atlantic in scope, but I'm still interested in kind of really thinking about the continuation of, you know, illegal, uh, illegal slavery, illegal captivity that really shapes this age of rebel, uh, emancipation, the age of abolition. So what it means. So kind of intellectually, that was kind of the starting point. But um, I was at the Schomburg last year, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture here in New York City. And it was such a wonderful space. It, the center was led, the scholar center was led by Brent Edwards, who's a literary scholar of the black diaspora, but it was an interdisciplinary space. And there was so much discussion. Edwards himself is a scholar of the archives, among many other things. And I became so much more interested in actually looking at the archives themselves. And not just, I think so many of us are kind of just go to the archives to say, I'm going to go to this archive to look for these sources. And if you're studying slave, I'm going to read it against the grain to find enslaved life, which is important. But I started to think much more about, you know, how archives are organized, how archives themselves tell certain stories about freedom or about captivity. And so um, I just came out with an article in Social Text. It's an experimental piece in which I incorporate for the first time ever myself but also people I know, my experiences in the archive, along with the sources themselves, to kind of think about, um, you know, the, the discrepancies between what the archives say, for instance, a source that celebrates the rescue of these Africans from this illegal slave ship. But if you look closely, they're all dead. So what does it mean to behold a record of liberation? That's also a death record, right? So, so those kinds of things I want to meditate more on this the illegal slavery and the lives of these enslaved people but more by looking more closely at the archives and our own encounters and our own desires for certain stories. And I want to make that more um, transparent. And then I'm also doing another shorter project on um, a secret society um, called PEMBA that was found in Espirito Santo. This is another, so I just found a great court case. So this one I'm doing actually an interdisciplinary collaboration with my um, friend and colleague, Ross Michael Brown, who's a religious studies scholar, because we want to think about how a historian reads slave insurrection and how a religious studies scholar can read insurrection is very different. So um, it's kind of a collaborative piece to kind of rethink how we can think about insurrection in uh, 19th century Brazil. Wow, uh, what a promising future. Uh, we'll, have to, <laughs> we'll have to keep paying attention to, to the articles and new books you'll, you'll put out. Uh, thank you very much for thank speaking you. with us. And best of luck on all of those projects. Oh, thank you, Patricia. And to you too. Thank you. <laughs>